Hello, this is Neil Ruda. Welcome to Unsung Missionary Heroes, interviews with heroes of the faith. This podcast is brought to you by the nine international ministries of Assemblies of God World Missions. These ministries are Builders International, Compassion Link, Global Initiative, Global University, Jacob's Hope, Life Publishers, Network 21-1, Oral Learners Initiative, and Royal Rangers International. For more information, visit im-agwm.org. Now let's join our podcast. Hello, I'm here with John and Ruth Merrill this morning, longtime Assemblies of God missionaries, and we are talking about their lives and ministry and missions. And John and Ruth, I want to start out by asking, how did you first of all become Christians? Hello, Neil. Let me say hello. First, John. Hello. Good to speak with you today uh, and renew our friendship over many, many years. Grateful for, for the service that you provided to God through the role He's called you to. So it's good to be with you and share in this podcast this morning. And I've got my wife with me, my lovely wife, Ruth, uh, who's been my faithful partner in uh, all of our missions, calling and career. She said, how did you become Christians? We became Christians at a, I became a Christian at a very young, young age. Uh, grew up in a Christian family, accepted Christ when I was about six or seven years old at an outdoor camp meeting in the sawdust floor back in the day when they used to do those kind of things. When you had camp meetings in August and it was hotter than blazes and it was humid and they there was sawdust on the floor, but there were no walls, so the breeze flew, uh, went through there, and you were praying for a breeze. But the uh, breeze blew me to the altar when I felt conviction, and I gave my heart to, to the Lord about seven years of age. Ruth, how about you? Well, I was a bit older, but my father was a Pentecostal, independent pastor, preacher, evangelist, and we would have family altar family reading of the Bible and prayer at nighttime. And one night, I think I might have been nine or 10. I'm not sure because it was just so common for us to be meeting together as a family. And I decided I wanted to ask Jesus to come into my life. And I knelt at my sofa in our little house and asked Christ to come into my heart and my life. And I have had a wonderful lifetime of serving him. So how did the two of you first meet? We met at university, but let me back up to the next question because it kind of really predates when we met. I was called into missions before we met. Okay. So one of the things you were, we wanted to talk about this morning or today is that how we were called into missions. And I was actually called into missions before Ruth and I met. I was attending high school where my parents live in Lubbock, Texas. And on an Easter Sunday morning, we had a visiting speaker, which is extremely rare for an Easter Sunday morning. And it was even rarer that that missionary speaker would be there to speak on an Easter Sunday morning. But he was a missionary from Nigeria, West Africa, and he spoke about his mission's work there. God moved upon my heart, and I felt impressed to speak to him after the service. And before there was ever a MAPS program, went up to him and said, uh, could you use any help? And that was a novel idea at the time. He said, well, I don't know. That's something I've never considered. Let's pray about it. So we did. Long story short, I ended up going to West Africa, spent a year of my life between high school and college in West Africa, Nigeria, Ghana, most of the time in Liberia at a leper colony there. And it was during this time that that God spoke very clearly to my heart about my life's calling into missions. I, because I was experiencing old-fashioned, traditional jungle missionary life, I thought that's what it would be like. And so when I left Africa and came back, I enrolled at CBC to get myself prepared to become a missionary. Only lasted one semester. 
And uh, John, I like to tell that you were the original maps work. Maybe, maybe. <laughs> that was back in 1963. So you can oh look my. it up and see <laughs> that sort of dates us here. But uh, I enrolled in CBC and realized everybody there was going to be a pastor, a preacher, evangelist, a Bible school teacher. And that did not fit my calling, even though I could not tell someone what my calling was other than it was missions. I, I had no clearer vision of it at that point. So I left CBC, transferred to Texas Tech, had two semesters there. I knew that in order to be a missionary, though, I needed to be prepared. And I saw that all the missionaries that I met, most of them at least, had wives, and I didn't have one yet. So I was eager to add that to my qualifications of being a missionary, although it doesn't qualify you, but it sure is necessary. So Ruth and I met at Oral Roberts University, where I went after Texas Tech. I became a line on his resume. Oh, a line on my resume. <laughs> uh, my father had worked for Oral Roberts for many, many years, and we had lived in Tulsa. Oral opened up the university in 1965. Ruth was one of the first students to be there in that first class. And I came the second semester in the spring semester of 1966. That was the background to my missions calling and where we met. But Ruth probably will have some other details that make it a little bit more interesting. Well, he came to ORU and I had already been there and was singing in the choir. And this new face appeared in the choir. I made a little bet with my roommate that I could get a date with this new <laughs> guy that had just come into the choir. And I did. I went to a basketball game and sat right behind. He, My roommate went with me and we went to one of the basketball games and sat right behind him intentionally, of course, got acquainted and I won the bet. I got my date with, with John Merrill, the new student, and that date has now lasted 56 years. Wow. When we started dating, I didn't just date willy-nilly. I was serious about this. I didn't. I was never a guy that played the field. I always had a purpose in mind. I was looking for a life partner, and now a, a life partner to share my calling and missions with. And so I was. I was pretty brutal with questions after about the second date when I would go out with someone, and I began to share with Ruth my experiences in Africa and get her reactions to that to kind of sense where she might be with it and. Finally, when we got a little more serious in a couple of months, I said, what would you think about never being able to go buy a new dress at a store because you'll get all your clothes out of missionary barrels that have been used, clothing sent by ladies' mission societies, and painted just the bleakest picture I possibly could. I must have been crazy in love. It only took me asking her twice before she said she would agree to that. She eventually did. Neil, as to my missionary calling, it's a little bit different journey. I will tell you what I told the committee back in the days of J. Philip Hogan as yeah. we sat around the table trying to go for appointment. And they said, so, Ruth, how did you feel called to be a missionary? And I grew up in a family that was ardently believers in the Word of God and the now non-traditional role of a wife being supportive and helping her husband. I believed and believed that. And so when they asked me, my answer was, and still is, that I love this man. And if he's called to be a mechanic, then I'm going to be the best mechanic's wife that I can be. And he tells me he's called to be a missionary. And so with God's help, I'm going to be the best missionary's wife that I can be. For 56 years. For 56 years. Yeah. And J. Philip Hogan kind of combed his hair because I think he really was looking for a more spiritual answer. But the essence of it is, I think it was based in the Word of God. 
So tell me about your lives and your careers and missions. Can you walk us through that? Yeah, there, there are a lot of chapters in that period of life. You know, when we were called, I was called to be a missionary, finally found my wife. I think I'm on the way. At that time, when we got out of Oral Roberts University, I was working at Central Assembly of God in Tulsa, Oklahoma, as their minister of youth and minister of music, directing choirs, being involved in youth ministry. And you have to go back a moment, though, to when I asked Ruth's father for her hand in marriage, because I told him if he agreed to let his daughter marry me, that he wouldn't see a lot of her. She was going to be spending her life overseas, fulfilling right. a missionary calling together. Ten years later, he asked me, John, are you still considering being a missionary? Ten years after we were married, because our life had taken a pathway of serving in churches in Oklahoma and in Texas. And at one point after we left the church at Tulsa, Oklahoma, I attempted to pursue this calling. And I went to Springfield and says, what do I need to do? Met with the personnel director and they said, well, you have to pastor for at least two years qualify to be a missionary. So I thought, pastor, I'm not pastor, but if that's what's required, I'll try. So we put our name out uh, as potential pastors that with open churches, small, you know, rural churches. Uh, that was the only thing I thought would maybe even consider us. And I would go and speak at a church thinking I was trying to preach. <laughs> the, the answer was always the same. Don't call us. We'll call you. And nobody ever called, sadly. And after three months, I'm going, Lord, I don't understand what's going on. You call me to be a missionary, and the symbols of God said, I've got to go pastor, and yet nobody wants me to pastor. How can I be faithful to this calling? And, and the Lord said, wait a minute, John, who called you anyway? The assemblies of God or me? And I said, well, Lord, you call me. He said, well, then do you think I can work this out? And I said, of course you can, Lord. You're faithful, and I'll try to be faithful to this calling. So we didn't uh, try to pursue something we weren't equipped or qualified to do as pastors. He, he said, why, why are you trying to do this when you're, not, when you're not qualified? So I took a position at a church in Dallas, Texas. We served there for four years, involved in music ministry the entire time that we were in both churches, and got a call from one of my former music professors at ORU had started a Christian recording company, Tempo Records in Kansas City. They were getting involved in, in a group or two that was traveling, and they asked us if we would travel and direct one of those groups called Renaissance. We traveled across all throughout the country. We traveled for a couple of years on the road, full-time, ministering in churches across the U.S., and, uh, all kinds of churches, of course, Assemblies of God, Baptist, Presbyterian, Catholic, even taking our message into high school auditoriums and conventions, uh, national conventions. Disneyland, Disney World, you name it, we, we were there doing it as professional musicians, recording albums that we sold as well that were sold. It was at this time that my father-in-law, after 10 years, says, do you still even consider the mission field? I said, Henry, we, we do, and every day we pray about that. And he said, well, it just looks like you're headed in one direction, but the mission field is in the opposite direction. I said, you couldn't be more accurate in that assessment, and I can't explain it to you. I don't understand it. I've just said, we're trying to be faithful to what God put in our heart to do and be ready to go. And so we'd gotten rid of credit cards. We were out of debt, waiting for God to open some door somewhere. And I was working in a studio in Kansas City at the time. Someone booked an hour of recording time. A guy wanted to come in and record a little soundtrack to go with the slideshow. It just so happens he was a missionary. And this missionary, as we were recording his soundtrack, he was a his name was Roger Olson. He was the video director at ICI and 
ICI in Brussels, Belgium. And he said, you know, John, we could use a guy just like you. I'm going, what? What, are, what am I hearing? He says, I'm, I'm a video guy. My background is video and ICI ministers through a variety of mediums, print primarily, but they have audio and video components that go along with their evangelism, discipleship, and even college level materials. And we need a guy with your expertise there. Would you consider something like that? And so we have special programs that are designed for people to come and try it out called MAPS programs. You can come try it out for a, you know, a year and see how you think what you think about it. And he didn't know, of course, my background. That had never been discussed. And I'm sitting there going, wow, I can now see that God has been preparing me for something other than preaching, evangelist, Bible school teacher, uh, the, the kind of traditional missionary roles that I was just, I was so elated to learn of that possibility. So I told him, I said, yes, we would be interested in pursuing this, but probably not as MAPS. Uh, God has spoken to our heart about long-term lifetime missionary service. He went back and shared that with Dr. Flattery. Dr. Flattery got in touch with us, came to our church where we were also ministering at Raytown in Missouri. We interviewed because Dr. Flattery went to bat with the committee for us, non-traditional missionaries, specialized missionaries. And God used all of that background to prepare us for a unique ministry through media that was a brand new thing at that time in Simmons God. We'd had printers all over the world, seen printers and print media. But the Assemblies of God at that point had never had anyone come on board other than Roger Olson, who was a full-time missionary, he's the video guy, and then myself coming on as audio. And so it was it was a very thrilling moment to see that realization become a reality. And we were invited then to go to uh, the interview process, which is still a standard process to interview all candidate missionaries. At the end of that week, after going through all of the tests and all of the meetings and all of the you know, the Roche Shark ink block tests and the Bible knowledge tests and, and all those things that all the candidates go through, all the interviews with different people. At the end of that time, uh, we were not asked to, to do anything. And everyone else who was there knew if they were going to be approved or not, except us. And so I got a hold of the uh, gentleman who served on the committee at that time, Joe Kilpatrick, who was overseeing international ministries. And I said, Joe, can you please tell us what's going on? He says, well, John, the committee asked me to speak with you. They're, they have some concern. I said, oh, what are those concerns? He says, well, you know, when you met with the committee and they looked at your resume, you went to Oral Roberts University for one thing. Uh, and that was kind of looked at askance at that time. Not only that, but, you know, your dress and your appearance coming from traveling on the road is not quite looking like a missionary. You have a non-traditional thing. We're just not really sure that if you go to itinerate in the churches that the folks would identify with your ministry strong enough for you to be able to raise your support. They need to consider this a bit longer. We were devastated. We drove back to Kansas City and bawled our eyes out the entire way because here it seems so apparent that God had been preparing us with specific skills that were meeting a specific opportunity need through ICI and now it was like, it might not happen. <laughs> At that time, Neil, I had a fro, if you can yeah. believe it. That was back in, back in the seven, oh, no, 80s. And I still had a fro late 70s. I had a fro. Well, uh, and, and our context was coming off of the road with a musical group that yes. was doing two concerts a day. 
So I, all kinds of I had on leather gauchos and a leather vest and a hey. <laughs> I, I had a I had a small cross on a gold chain, you know, around my neck, and it just didn't fit the traditional missionary mold, obviously, and that raised some real concerns. We said, Lord, as we drove back, cried, you know, we, I'll get rid of my fro if that's it. And Ruth says, I'll dress plainly and da-da-da. So they ended up inviting us conditionally to come to the training session during the summer. And at that time, it was like six weeks or eight it was. weeks, the whole summer. AG grad school was a part of that, classes there, a summer session with them. And so we decided we are going to be wallflowers. We were not going to stand out in our appearance or any other way. Uh, we had been frontline people for a long time in churches. We we're going to be back row seaters on this deal. We bought conservative clothes. We were going to, yes. We were going to do our best. We're here. To fit the missionary mold and to just be wallflowers. And in the first week that we were there, they said, oh, you sang and directed musical groups? How about doing the candidates' choir this summer? I'm going, well, there's so much for the being in the background. The other wonderful thing about this, we renewed our credentials with the North Texas District, which we still are members of the North Texas District. Those folks embraced us so warmly. They opened their hearts and their doors of the churches what was taking at that time about an 18-month period of time for new candidate missionaries to raise their budget. God did it for us in 11 months, and we were gone on our way to the field. You end up knowing that you live your life for an audience of one. And when you live your life for the audience of one, it's all up to him, and he, he comes through. So we went to ICI. I was the audio, first of all, audio engineer. After our first term there, I became the media division director over both audio and video. We served with ICI uh, for 21 years in Brussels initially, and then when they were moved to Irving, Texas in, uh, I think, around 1990, 1991, uh, we moved back with them, served there uh, in Irving until they were getting ready to move to Springfield and become Global University with some changes. We were preparing to make that same move when we were asked then to direct international media ministries in, back in Brussels, Belgium. We prayed about that, felt God was calling us to that new direction, moved back to Brussels and directed international media ministries, first of all in Brussels and then in Spain, which is another part of the story we'll get into maybe later. I think that it needs to be said that 21 years with ICI, with Dr. George Flattery, wow, what an opportunity as new young missionaries to sit at the feet of and work with and daily interact with such a visionary, amazing leader. Yes. It left marks and imprints on our life that were there the rest of our missionary life. Yeah, here was someone that even though the committee had their doubts, he didn't have any doubts about us, embraced us, folded us into that ministry, put up with a lot of uh, new, new missionary learning as we all go through. When we go to the field, was patient with us and always always kind, loving, accepting, and encouraging us in ways that allowed us to grow in ministry beyond what we even envisioned when we went there initially. Dr. George has a way of being respectful, even if he's being corrective, even if he's being trying to lead you down a path that maybe was not your initial idea. But he has a way of treating people with a respect that with his degrees, leadership, intelligence, abilities, years could not be there, but they are. 
I, I see so many of the fruits of the Spirit in his life. So then we spent 10 years with IMM following that time, and it was at that point that we felt we were ready to hand that direction of ministry over to a new leader, which we did, and moved back to the States, and then served as missionaries based in the United States for another three years or so before I retired when we became 70 years of age. So that's kind of the overview. What were some of the highlights? It's interesting, Neil, that there are so many different highlights of the overall highlight is the amazing faithfulness of God. The faithfulness carries with it the connotation of time. And when you think about a missionary, our missionary career, as far as overseas, of 38 years, in the concept of time, that he is always present, that he is always there, that he is always with you, that he is always meeting needs, that's faithfulness. His faithfulness through changes in ministry, through raising children, through changes in the field is astounding. I have chosen Great is Thy Faithfulness to be sung at my memorial service for a reason, because that is our God, our good, good God. I think about a couple of times when we were founding the Center for Illiterate Outreach it was, we were struggling. We were trying, God had put in our heart to reach out to people who cannot read, illiterate people all over the world. And we were struggling to get this started. And John had gone traveling to record in obscure languages where they needed materials for people who cannot receive the gospel in any other way. I was at home with two little kids and writing scripts and minding the store, so to speak. And challenges would come up. And one of those was that at that time, one of the couples who was working with us had this a stillborn baby. As the wife, the second in command, so to speak, sitting here in a foreign country, and John gone doing the on-hands ministry, I felt so helpless to comfort, to walk with them through this to support them. Yet deep in my heart, I knew that this was a test. And the Bible talks in Hebrews about that we will not be tempted, which is actually tested beyond anything that we can endure. And it's true that in these tests that Satan will come at your ministry with, in the tests that he will send into your life, he is faithful. And that is when, above all, you have to stand. And so this couple were uh, put on a plane while John was gone and sent back to the United States for healing and recovery. The next trip that John went on to record in Brazil, in the back of the Amazon jungle in Brazil, in an Indian language, and record the gospel for them, one of the MAs who had come to work with us came back from the doctor with a diagnosis of a brain tumor. And I found myself preparing a deal, a dinner, and inviting our staff to come to our home and have a farewell dinner at a prayer meeting for a young man named Steve, who was diagnosed with brain cancer. In those moments, you know the enemy is testing you. He is trying you. And is our God faithful even in those times? Oh, yes, he is. You know, we had been burdened and privileged to start a ministry reaching out to non-readers, which was a, a brand new idea at that time. And Dr. Flattery had allowed us even to pursue that ministry. And it seemed like all the people that responded to want to come alongside us and help were being affected in these tragic ways, these life-changing ways. And it caused us to wonder, Lord, are we following you? 
Uh, or is this a Satan attacking what we're trying to do, trying to discourage us and trying to pull it down and, and get us to give up on the vision that we feel you place in our heart? And faithfulness, pursuing your vision and being faithful to that, regardless of the circumstances around you, I think is what Ruth was saying is key to proving God's faithfulness in your lives and in the ministry he calls you to. So the paradox is that you asked me, what are the highlights of the ministry? It's really hard to reach a highlight unless you go through the broken place. It's really hard to be to talk to you about the, the faithfulness of God without first going to the challenge, the test, which makes it very, very interesting that the highlights of ministry become the moments that were the very lowest yeah. and that Jesus was there. And that was my next question. What were the low points? And they, they worked together and segued together. They worked together. We do, because one of the high points was being able to partner with missionaries in Bangladesh, Larry and, and Sharon Smith, uh, in initiating a ministry, a video television ministry. They assumed it would come start on satellite with a very few people being able to reach it. Ended up being on the national Bangla TV, Muslim-owned state television station, the one and only those programs airing uh, to 50 million viewers every week, not something we planned, something God sovereignly did. But it was during that time of great opportunity, greatest opportunity of reaching souls in a Muslim country that we had ever had, that we had the gendarme in Belgium come in and shut our ministry down, shut IMM down, say we could not go back into the mission-owned building that we were operating in without threat of fines in excess of 100,000 euros. We were trying to finish up broadcast programming for Bangladesh. We were right in the middle of that. So we had to move equipment out into our apartments, into our homes, and continue working outside the building, sort of undercover, while we were trying to sort out what God's plan was for the ministry in the future. But it's, it's those uh, high moments and low moments that seem to collide sometimes. I think they can feed off of one another sometimes. But that was certainly a highlight. Because you sure wouldn't say that facing the Red Sea for the Egyptians was the highlight of their journey. But it turned into the highlight of their mm -hmm. journey because of our great and good and awesome God. He just shows up. He does show up. You know, talking a little bit about the stage we're in right now in retirement, you mentioned low points. I, I have to be very transparent and say probably the lowest point I had was twofold. One there at the beginning of our ministry when the, it looked like the committee was going to reject us. That was a very low point. And another low point came as I turned 65 and I was facing retirement. I became very depressed for the very first time in my life. I became extremely, extremely depressed. Speaking with Joanne Butern, who was the director for all international ministries and my boss at the time, and she suggested I go see someone that could help talk me through some of this. And my depression stemmed around the fact that I thought retirement would mean ending my ministry, and it would be as I knew it, but it wouldn't be ending ministry at all. I didn't know what ministry would look like after retirement had no idea if there could be, what it would look like. I knew it wouldn't be through my appointment as an Assembly of God missionary, fully appointed Assembly of God missionary. I was mostly depressed over, I felt I would be disappointing God's call in my life. He called me when I was 18. I gave him my life to fulfill that calling. And here I would be looking at retirement. Was that turning my back on that calling? 
through some wonderful help of the gentleman that was helping talk me through this, he helped me come to a new place in my understanding that my value to God was not in all the things that we had served him doing. It was in who I was. He loved me for who I am and not what I do. And when I began to understand that, it took that burden of depression off my shoulders. And I knew that he was going to love me to the very end. And his calling for me was to love and serve him, not to do. All the doing had been exciting, had been great, had been fulfilling, had, had been so rewarding. And I saw that coming to an end and thought that my value was also coming to an end. But I realized it wasn't coming to an end in the eyes of our Savior and our Lord, the one who had actually called me. And so Ruth and I would talk about retirement. And we'd say, okay, what is that going to look like? I don't know. When, 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 when? That's the big question. When are you going to retire? I said, I don't know. I don't know. The Lord will tell us. And so almost daily we prayed, we prayed, Lord, let us know the right time for this. Let us know. We were working in and out of Africa at that time, based in the United States, using the materials that we had produced so many years earlier with ICI, now Global University, to establish work with the national church among Maasai and other tribal peoples who were non-readers. It was an exciting, thrilling time for us to yes. be on the field, not just preparing materials, but using them and, and actually implementing them in ways that we're, we're seeing lives changed, hands-on ministry. And after being an institutional ministry all of our lives, this was a real highlight for us, having the opportunity to be in the field, getting our feet in the grime and loving people and seeing their hearts and lives change firsthand, not hearing the stories, but being a part of that story ourselves. We were back in Tanzania and speaking at a conference that uh, the superintendent Barnabas Mtokambali had called together. And I was there to retire, tell him we were done, we were finished. And we had presented several pastors coming from rural areas that talked about the success and what they were being able to do with these new tools. And Brother Mtokambali looked at me and he said, well, John, he says, there's some more languages to do. Would you help us with those? And I was ready to quit. And Ruth looked at me like, what is he going to say? And I said, Brother Mtokambali, as long as the Lord gives us strength and energy, we will do that. And so we knew that pushed retirement off even a little bit further. And we continued down that path, fulfilling that commitment. While we were in the States, much of the time, we would, if we weren't uh, traveling in our fifth wheel uh, to churches and presenting ministry, we'd be based in Springfield. And I was driving back to that fifth wheel one afternoon after the day at the office, and the Lord spoke to me. He gave me when I was supposed to retire. And I was so excited when I got back to that fifth wheel and I opened the door and I said, Ruth, Ruth, I know when we're supposed to retire. And she got excited. She says, oh, great. When, when is it? What's the date? I said, well, he didn't give me a date. He just assured me that what he said to me there waiting at a stoplight at Boonville and Campbell was whenever you're ready. And that was such a shocking revelation. I was looking for a date, a time, and God conferred and told me and let me understand that when I felt it was time, it was okay. It was the right time. Whenever you're ready. And so we continued to serve and minister until we were 70 and had established a center for literate outreach had been had morphed into the oral learners initiative. We had been able to bring on uh, some other additional staff. Oral Learners Initiative became an actual ministry of AGWM and its international ministries, the fulfillment of a lifetime vision. And whenever we were ready is the time when we were able to hand that over to new leadership. 
So through the years, you were a part of three international ministries, IMM, Global University, ICI, and Oral Learners Initiative. That's correct. Did you ever want to give up? <laughs> Ruth? No. Good. No, because the God who is faithful and calls you, he is just there. Neil, I think it all goes back to knowing that you know that you know. You're not setting out on an adventure because people who are setting out on adventures, they sometimes give up and come home. You're not setting out on, oh, well, if this works, you're setting out on, I have a mandate from the living God. And when you have a mandate from the living God, he is there. He is faithful. He is going to do it. You're just going to have to take courage. You're going to have to be a Joshua and take courage and not fear and move forward and stand. Uh, this is not necessarily spiritual in a sense. I'm going to quote Churchill here. He says, never, never, never give in. And the end of that, though, says, never yield to the apparently overwhelming might of the enemy. The enemy has overwhelming might, but never, never give in. And 1 Thessalonians 5.24 says it this way. The one who is calling you is faithful, and he will do it. There's so many great concepts. First of all, I think calling. If you don't have a clear sense of calling and purpose about that calling, and you're going into this as a career, then I think that's a dangerous place to be. Missions service is not a career. I think in this day and age, all the institutions that we have it can look like a career. It might look like that on the surface, but when you get down into the nitty gritty of it all, if it's only a career, when things change, you're going to change and you're going to bail. But if it's a calling, then you know that you are going to be faithful and God is going to be faithful to that calling because that's his word and he honors and keeps his word at all times. So if I would have any word for any new missionaries, it's before they even become missionaries, actually. We've had the privilege of talking to so many people through our churches all the years we've itinerated, and people would come up afterwards and obviously say, you know, how did you get into missions? How do you know if you're called? And the opportunity to speak into their lives. And calling is the basis of the whole thing. We've seen missionaries on the field who were there as career people, and they did not last. When the difficulties came, when the hard times came, uh, when circumstances changed, they needed to give up that career and go back to something else. But You know, it's right back at the Garden of Eden in a way, Neil. It's half God said. And if you have prayed through, if you have a word from the living God, then Satan cannot deceive you into thinking, well, did God really say that? Because if he said it, you'll do it. And there can be challenging circumstances that definitely. Remove, you, remove you from the act, the activity you're involved in, but it doesn't mean you're changing. Uh, your, your call has changed. You may have to move from being overseas because of health reasons or something else, but that doesn't change your calling. Your health has changed. Your circumstances have changed in the actual activities that you are doing, but that doesn't change a person's calling just because their circumstances change. And being obedient to that calling obedience is one of the other key words that for me is a standout and been one of the words that have been a, a light 
a guiding light for me that I try to share with others when they ask me that question is be obedient to that calling. Because if it's truly a calling, it's not something that will come to an end someday. And we've discovered that. I thought we were coming to an end as AGW missionaries, but our ministry continues, even though we have a different chapter of ministry these days. Tell me about some of that. Wow. <laughs> we get up in the morning, Neil. Here we are. I'm 75, John. And we get up in the morning and we tell God we're available. Don't tell God you're available if you're not, because he will find an assignment. <laughs> and sometimes those assignments are chance encounters. We call them chance encounters at the checkout at the grocery store. Yeah. Or just daily, our daily lives, our daily paths are not chance encounters. They're divine encounters. And so when you say you're available, then that means your spiritual eyes and ears are attuned to those things that come your way. I'll never forget a, a verse of scripture I used many times in my itineration, taking advantage of every opportunity. And I can't give you the verse in scripture right now, but the scripture says to take advantage of every opportunity the Lord brings your way. And so we do that in small ways, but God has also brought opportunities in our life to be engaged with ministry along our southern border with the tremendous problems there. There have to do with the migration of refugee peoples, immigrants. It's become very politicized. We've taken teams down there and we've told them we're down here not to espouse any political persuasion. We're here to pray and to minister for these people. Regardless of your political persuasion, lay that aside. That has no place in this at all. These are still souls that need to be one for Jesus Christ. Some of the people are cartel members that are known cartel members, but they need Jesus too. Some of them are smugglers. They need Jesus too. They're traffickers. They need Jesus too. And our purpose is not to go down and tell them or try to set that all right. It's to let them know about the Savior, Jesus Christ. So we've, we've had the privilege of being engaged with a variety of people who live there full time, even though we've just have traveled a few times, but who live there and are committed and are called to minister to people who have been backed up on the Mexican side of the border using all kinds of materials. And we've been able to help connect them with people like One Hope, who have been very, very generous in supplying over 60,000 pieces of children's materials in Spanish that are being used so effectively in those camps on the, on the uh, Mexican side and the U.S. side of the border as well. God bless One Hope. Yes, absolutely. Yes. Thankful for their ministry, their willingness to reach into places uh, through the resources that God has given them and the tools that they have developed. We talked earlier about, did you ever want to quit and give up? And I look at the people we're working with down on the border, lay people who are over there on the plazas in Mexico and ministering. And there are thousands of times the enemy is so deceived. The police are corrupt. The cartel comes through. They get threats, but they don't give up because they know that the God who has called them is faithful and they are there to do the task. They're there day after day on the plaza, ministering to the children, holding children's crusades, baptizing people in portable children's swimming pools on the plaza. So it's been delightful to be a part of something that has been politicized, but we're not into the politics of it. We're, we're, they're people who need Jesus. Anything you'd like to close with? This world is not our home. Yeah, We're just passing through here. And having reached this stage in our life, it seems like so many of our contemporaries have already passed through or are in the process of passing through. And it gives us pause to 
be able to reflect on the goodness and the faithfulness of the Lord through all the years that we've been privileged to serve him all over this world, through the international ministries of the Assemblies of God being a platform for the calling, fulfillment of the calling of ministry in my life, which I thought would never happen. It took 10 years for that door to open from the time that I first began to try to pursue it after Ruth and I got married. And yet God did it. We didn't do it. He be faithful. He's the one that will do it. He's the one that will accomplishment. And I think that as we continue at each stage in our life, whether we're beginning our missionary service as young, younger couples, I could not have done this, even though it was my calling. And Ruth says it was a derived calling through that. There is no way I could have been used to the extent that I have without this faithful, dear, wonderful, loving wife of mine. And she has not only stood with me side by side, she's put the yoke on as well. And we have pulled this ministry and the calling together jointly. And there is a sweetness in the that nothing can take the place of. So we're just thankful that the Assemblies of God gave us that platform to fulfill God's call in our lives. And Neil, I would like to tell anybody that is going into missions, perhaps for the first time on an MA assignment or as a as a long-term lifetime missionary, that God doesn't have any scraps. It is just amazing. I can show you examples in the Bible of how they gathered up all the leftovers. But he'll take the little threads of your life that you thought were just momentary, and he somehow has a use for all of those. And that goes for relationships. The relationships that you form with people now, the the relationships that you make with the janitor at the church you're itinerating in, God has a purpose for those. The secretary at the church, the person who answered the phone and told you, no, well, you can't come to our church. He has this plan that is so marvelous and magnificent. And if we can somehow realize that he doesn't have any scraps, if you're sharing somewhere, he has a reason. If you're checking out at the grocery store and the lady's cranky and you bless her in Jesus' name, he has a purpose. And to live every life, Galatians says, now that you have received the Holy Spirit, keep in step with the Spirit. That's not easily done, but it's so important because the things that looked like they were just a youth minister, minister just you, were, you just sang the song, you just did this little thing. He's got a marvelous plan. John and Ruth, thank you. Thank you for this time, but especially thank you for your lives and the lives of service to the kingdom. People listening are going to be challenged by what you've shared. All of us, all of us have a purpose for the kingdom. Amen. Amen and amen, Neil. And thank you for the opportunity to share a little bit of our life story, a peek into our lives about every one of the journeys we take with the Lord fulfilling his calling is unique and different. Thank you for the opportunity for us to share some of that with your listeners as well. God bless you. Well, that's our podcast for today on Unsung Missionary Heroes, Interviews with Heroes of the Faith. My name is Neil Ruda. This podcast has been brought to you by the nine international ministries of Assemblies of God World Missions. They are Builders International, Compassion Link, Global Initiative, Global University, Jacob's Hope, Life Publishers, Network 211, 
Oral Learners Initiative, and Royal Rangers International. You can check all of them out at im-agwm.org. Thanks again for joining us, and come back again and listen to our next podcast. <laughs> <laughs>